sitting in the lobby at a hotel in New York, this woman comes up to me. Hey, are you that storyteller radio guy, Glenn Washington? Yeah. Oh my goodness, do you mind if I take a picture for my girlfriend? Of course. The woman, she's super nice. We take a picture, we chat for a bit, and she's off. But then, one of the hotel bellhops, he's looking at me anxiously. Sir, did I hear you're Glenn Washington? Yeah, I'm Glenn. Oh my God! Jeffrey Bantu, come quick, it's Glenn Washington! And lickety spit, there are like 30 brothers from the Caribbean, all God, Glenn Washington! And they all want to shake my hand. Now, I'm thrilled. No idea they've got Snap on the islands. And the first guy, he's like, picture time! And he takes out this phone. And all these three dozen fellas, they gather around me, big beaming smiles to take this once-in-a-lifetime photo. And I'm standing there in the middle when it occurs to me, Glenn Washington, you know, that's the name of a famous reggae singer who is not me, but they must think, oh, no. And I want to run away to tell everyone there's been a big mistake. Still, they're all so happy to meet that other Glenn Washington. Say cheese. So I figure, what the hey? Cheese. Today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Boxed In. Amazing story from real people with absolutely nowhere to go. My name is Glenn Washington. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to get some dreadlocks when you're listening. To Snap Judgment. Now then, our first story begins with a young British man who signs himself up for a two-year work exchange program in Australia. Good idea, right? Well, we'll let him tell you what happened next when he packed his bags and landed. A stranger in a strange land. I think I decided I I would want to go home, or I wanted to go home, probably about 12 hours after I actually landed. It's a kind of classic story of a teenager leaving home for the first time. Brian was thrilled to get out, hungry for adventure, and pretty much as soon as he realized just how far away from the comforts of home he was, he immediately wanted to go back. The conditions were tough. It was quite outbackish in those days, believe me. The hostel was kind of flea-bag. Rat-infested. And the food, well... We ate beans most of the time from the can, and there was nowhere to cook them, so they were cold. Uh, but as part of the agreement, we had to stay there for two years or repay the airfare over and the airfare back. That was £700, when the salaries were £40 a month or something. You know. Brian wasn't the only one who was homesick. 
I had two Irish friends who were in the same boat as me. Neither of them wanted to stay in, in Australia. All we talked about was how, how to get out of Australia, uh, what we were missing at home. I think from my point of view, there were two things I actually wanted more than anything. Uh, one was to meet my old friends again. And the second thing, I wanted some cheddar cheese. Not Australian version, but real cheddar cheese from the UK. Uh, I think I spent most of my time trying to dream up ideas of how to get uh, out of there. But he was trapped. He couldn't afford to pay his way out. At one point, he decided to stow away on a ship. He slipped onto a passenger boat called the Southern Cross from Sydney to Southampton. But... I'm actually not very good uh, at travelling over water. He got sick. Seasick, actually, but violently seasick. He was chucked off the boat in New Zealand and sent back to the Fleabag Hostel. He'd eat beans out of a can and commiserate with his two Irish friends. The more despondent he became, the more determined. I was going home. He'd write letters to his family, and six weeks later he'd get a letter back. And a thought suddenly hit me. I decided that I would post myself from Australia to London. Post himself? Like, mail himself? In a human-sized envelope? I started gathering details about, could a a parcel be sent cash-on delivery to London? And the answer was yes. And what's the largest type of container one could send? Obviously, to be able to do all this, I needed some sort of crate. I managed to find a woodyard, and in the woodyard was my dream home. This quite handsome-looking box. It was only about the size of a mini-fridge, but it was exactly what he wanted. I wasn't the least bit frightened. I wasn't worried. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't anything. It was, in some ways, a little bit like a game, perhaps, with the arranging, and, and there was so much to do. I had to get invoices for what was, what was supposed to have been in the crate. Do you remember the first time you floated this idea to another human? The first time I floated this idea to another human, my two Irish friends actually, one of them agreed if I want to do it, I should do it. The other chap quite categorically said, no way is it going to happen. It's too dangerous. Anything could go wrong. All it takes is one foolish friend to agree to your foolish idea. So we started planning it, you know. Once we had the crate, we needed some precautions. And so we used some rope to make a harness because I remembered, of course, on an aeroplane you have a seatbelt. So I made, or we made a harness which would strap me into the crate. Um, One of the sides of the box, we actually made so it would, or could, theoretically, be opened from the inside of the box. And then we also equipped it with in-flight service. We put two bottles, two plastic bottles, in the crate, one full of water uh, and one empty. Uh, The empty one, I would leave the listener to guess what that was for. I had a flashlight and I also had a book of the Beatles, uh, Beatles songs. I then went on a complete diet, so I didn't eat for probably two days, or for obvious reasons. 
The day of the departure, my two Irish friends came over. I got into the crate, and as I got in, so I'm standing sort of waist high in this crate. My two friends said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I'm absolutely certain I want to do it. I sat down in the crate with my legs up into my chest, strapped myself in, and my two friends nailed the top on, nail by nail. With each nail, I was quite happy. With each banging sound for each nail, I was quite happy. There were little sort of slats of light coming through. It smelt, well, it smelt of fresh wood, fresh sawn wood, basically. And it's something I think I'll always remember for the rest of my life, the, the smell of the thing. Once the crate was loaded onto the taxi truck and my friends had said a very quiet goodbye as it was being loaded, I thought, oh dear, what have I got myself into? Should I be doing this? Like, what were the things to finally be afraid of? Lack of oxygen, the, the crate collapsing perhaps around me, dying from hypothermia, the crate getting lost in transit. I think dehydration was a very big issue. That's a partial list. As his crate bumped down the road in the back of a pickup truck, the potential danger of his little trip finally began to dawn on him. And then I think I countered that by saying to myself, it's a bit late to stop now, isn't it? We had signs all over the outside of the crate that actually said, this side up. Very simple to read, for most people anyway. Needless to say, when it arrived at the airport, they forgot the this side up, and the crate was dumped unceremoniously upside down under the sun. And so uh, I stayed there without making a sound, but the box getting warmer and warmer and warmer under the Australian sun, standing on my head with my knees up in my chest. Not a very nice position to be in. In fact, very uncomfortable. I spent 24 hours upside down in the same spot. And of course, that meant at night, the wind was blowing. It was really cold. Did you think about giving up at this point? Like knocking on the crate and saying, help, get me out of here, this was a terrible idea. Okay, I, I'd given this a lot of thought, obviously, whilst I was in the crate. Did I want to go ahead with this? And the answer was absolutely yes. There was no way now that I was going to give up. And the harder things became, the more convinced I was that I was not going to give up. And the thoughts of going home and having some cheddar cheese, I don't know why cheddar cheese, because I'm not a big cheese lover, but I was at that particular time. So he sat there, upside down, in the wind, and the dark, and the blazing heat, thinking about cheese. Until... I was quite joyous when, after 24 hours, I was suddenly put on a forklift again and put into the hold of another aircraft. Then I knew I was really on my way and I was really leaving Australia. Once you go from the sunlight into the aircraft anyway, light changes to darkness. There was actually no light on the flight at all. The plane took off. 
Entertaining myself was very difficult because, of course, there were not many options. And yes, I did sing a few songs. Trains and boats and planes can take me home. But as the hours dragged on, and he was stuffed into this crate, buried under a pile of cargo, it got a little less sing-songy. It got real. Cold was the first to come on, and I, I felt, oh, as if I was sitting in a, a freezer, perhaps. The worst feeling was not the cold, it was the heat. It was actually freezing, but at the same time, it felt too warm, too hot, boiling. I can barely handle sitting in a coach-class seat for seven hours. I was having to put up with more and more pain. Oh, I wish I could move my arms or something. And of course, I couldn't straighten my legs. My legs were folded up in my chest the whole time. Anybody who sits in one position uh, for any length of time will find that the joints will seize up. And it wasn't one flight. The plane would land and then take off, land and then take off again to refuel. I couldn't move now, or I could hardly move. It was all over my body. I mean, I was in, in a pretty bad way. I then also started to hallucinate. My biggest fear was that the aircraft developed engine trouble. And the only way for the aircraft to continue with its journey was to throw the freight out of the aircraft. And, you know, on reflection, it sounds stupid, but I really thought that was going to happen. Well, the plane eventually landed, and I think I'm home. I think I'm in London. He feels his crate being lifted off the floor, carried off the aircraft, and lowered to the ground. And then he was left alone. And so if I'm going to escape, uh, now's the time to try and do it. Except for the fact that I couldn't move. I mean, I literally, by then, couldn't move a muscle at all. So I waited. I waited, ooh, maybe six or seven hours. There were two, I could see, two people walking in the warehouse. They came over to my crate. And, and as they got level with it, one of them jumped back in utter amazement as he said to his colleague, there's a body in there. And they were probably the worst words I'd heard in the whole five, four and a half days I'd been in the crate because they weren't speaking with a British accent. I then knew I wasn't in London. They both went away for what seemed like eternity. Then, of course, this gaggle of people, literally, uh, descended on the crate. I could hear all this. I couldn't speak. My throat was so swollen, I couldn't speak at all. Couldn't make a sound, actually. Eventually, it was an FBI officer, I think, he looked through the crate again. We literally met eye to eye, and he could see me blinking or whatever. And he said, There's not a body in here. He's alive. It took him 20 seconds to rip the whole side of the crate off and to lift me out. 
But I couldn't talk and I couldn't move. They laid me on my back on the floor, and my knees were still tucked up into my chest. I was in a frozen position. I literally couldn't move. And they tried to force my legs down, and as they did, the top part of my body lifted up into the air. They took him to the Los Angeles Central Receiving Hospital. Of course, government officials, journalists, they all speculated that the international mystery man was some kind of fugitive, or an asylum seeker, or a secret agent. No one guessed 19-year-old homesick guy from Wales who missed a properly aged cheese. And people were very serious about this,、uh, and they were talking amongst themselves. The Cold War was going full steam ahead at this time, and the first thoughts who I could have been was some sort of、uh, spy, some sort of Russian spy or whatever spy. I don't know exactly. And I was thinking, this is ridiculous. How could they think I'm a spy? But he couldn't talk. He was frozen, stiff. A team of nurses lowered him into a hot tub. They spoon-fed him ice cream. As far as the jacuzzis and so th-、um, so forth were concerned, it was rather like being in a five-star hotel. <laughs> Until after about twelve hours, he could talk with a tiny, scratchy voice. And once he started talking, they promptly drove him to the nearest FBI office. When I first went into the FBI offices, I sat down in front of quite a senior agent. The FBI agent wore a dark suit and told Brian that he was in the U.S. illegally and was facing two options: either he would be shipped home or sent back to Australia. The choice was up to Pan Am Airlines. Then a phone rang. The FBI agent put the phone down, and he said, "You are so lucky. They're going to send you back to London." They drove him through crowds of reporters and British expats and overnight fans straight to the airport, where they handed him a first-class ticket. As the plane took off, a stewardess came on the PA system. We would like to welcome aboard Brian Robson, our stowaway from Melbourne, Australia. And the amazing thing—I don't think this would happen nowadays—but the amazing thing was that everybody actually clapped. As far as the Getting home was concerned. I I obviously met all of my family and everything else. But the strange thing is that the appeal for cheese wasn't appealing anymore. I didn't want it anymore. Yeah, I think I think to put some meaning into the whole thing is the fact that homing instinct is built into both human beings and pigeons. Both of us. Well, certainly human beings always、um, think or go back to their roots eventually. So, did you write the two Irish guys and tell them you made it? That is my getting the Irish people that helped me pull it off were really lifesavers in a way. Unfortunately,、uh, I lost all their contact details, and so to this day, I have never actually. Managed to contact them or speak to them at all. If you're listening, let's face it, fellas, this was a harebrained scheme that, you know, could have got you into, into a lot of trouble and could have killed me. And so, I think all three of us need to get together and and have a pint and 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 decide not to do it again. 
Miles Snappers. If you think you can repeat Brian's little journey here, please think again. We got a little something to let you know this ain't happening. Do you know, uh, after I did this, they introduced a method of trying to stop anybody else doing it. And this is how how high-tech it was in the early 60s. They were spraying freight with sneezing powder so that anybody in the crate would sneeze and they they knew people were in there or somebody was in there. Um, That was their idea. That was high-tech in in 63. (laughs) Thank you very, very much, Brian. And keep your eyes out, Snap Nation, because Brian tells us this story is soon to be made into a film by Bird Flight Films. Keep your eyes out for that. Big thanks to Jason Caffrey at the BBC for helping us track down Brian. The sound design for this piece was by Snap Judgment's Renzo Gorio. And if you missed even a moment of this story, you're going to want to subscribe to the Snap Judgment podcast and rectify that situation because freshly back from maternity leave, never depart from us again. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. Now, in Snap Judgment, the boxed-in episode continues the best dress ever. And the world's very oldest profession, all this and more, so much more. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the boxed-in episode. Today, we're exploring what it feels like to have an increasingly narrow range of options. Now, dressmaker Paul Valdez, he's made a lot of dresses in his life, but there is one dress he can never forget. It was my grandmother that asked me to wear this dress, this creation. She said, when my funeral comes, I want you in head to toe, all in black. She said, I can see you standing there. And I said, Grandma, of course I will. It was sort of a secret between me and her. We used to go for little car rides and different things, and she would talk to me about it. She was more like my mother because I spent practically every waking moment with her My grandmother taught me how to sew. It was years and years of me witnessing what she did, her explaining. So I was really an apprentice to her. She only told me the story twice. Um, It disturbed her greatly. And so she was about marriageable age when when she apprenticed for this dressmaker that was in the town. He was a costeria, but he was a man. Uh, and a costaria is uh, is a seamstress. And my grandmother always said that he that he was gay, and that he had a lover in town. But in in those times in the twenties, it was illegal. And she uh, worked for him for quite a while. And one day she went in and she noticed that there were a lot of people gathered around the front of of his store shop. She saw him impaled on a 
pitchfork. They broke into his house and impaled him and left him in front of his dress shop to die. I think when my grandmother saw that man killed, she made up her mind that she was never going to be that person. She was never going to exclude people from her, from her world. And because of that, she was constantly obsessed by the worry of somebody killing me. But later on, I would become a, a female impersonator, a drag queen. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. And we started making dresses together for my drag shows. As grandma got older, she got more and more ill, and, you know, it was time for me to fulfill that promise. It, you know, it was time for me to go to the fabric store and do one of the hardest fabric choices of my life. I felt extraordinarily guilty the whole time I was making this outfit. I knew what it was for, I knew that I had to finish it, and I didn't want to, so I tried everything not to finish it. But every garment, they call out to you, you know, and I found myself working on it. It had a high collar that went up to the top of my neck, an old world European shirt. It was buttoned up the front, ruffle trim, black netting, bell sleeves, the love knot, the side bustle, sequins and beads everywhere, black flowers with black sequins on them, all the way down to the floor, and it trailed right behind me. And I hung it on the closet door, and I made myself look at it every day. And I said, one of these days, that dress is not going to be there anymore. You're just going to have to get over it. Of course, it's, it's, it's those old superstitious things that you think that, you know, am I causing her to die early? Am I telling the universe that I want my grandmother to die? But I, I knew back in the back of my mind that she wasn't going to get through it. I got to hold her as she was taking her last breath. I closed her eyes later back in. I didn't leave her. And then we brought her mortal remains from Española to Santa Fe, where she was going to have her mass at the cathedral. There was this moment where my mother said, are you ready? Are you ready to put it on? And I said, yeah, mom, I'm ready. And she said, okay, well, once you put it on, you can't take it off. And I said, okay, mom. My hair was braided, and then I put black roses all over it. My mother and my father put the veil over my face. The doors swung open, and there's this beautiful sort of light coming in. And I started walking down the aisle of the cathedral. I'm under my veil, and I can see all these people looking at some of these dirty looks. There was parts of me that were very worried because I was afraid that, that somebody in the audience was going to say, I don't know. I was faint. I could hear my heart beating in my throat. I was sweating. It was, it was not an easy walk. That was, that was a, a thousand miles. I don't think I have ever stood up as straight and as tall to walk down that aisle to get to that altar. It was one of the most self-defining moments of my life. Right before the uh, 
exchanging of peace. The father comes down from the pulpit and then he greets the family individually and gives them hugs. And I went to go hug the father and he put his hand at my chest as I went to go hug him and he pushed me from my chest. It was like he had to get away from me. He couldn't get away from me fast enough. And I knew why he pushed me away. He couldn't possibly have, excuse my language, you know, uh, a queer touching him, a fag touching him. You know, what would that do to his reputation? But the way you feel about somebody else should be suspended, especially when they're in mourning and in grief. Um, there, there are rules to it. Everybody knows not to treat somebody that way when they're mourning. Can't being queer, being whatever you are, eccentric, different, be postponed for one second to give you a little bit of what my grandmother would call consejo, passion. It bothered me because that one moment tainted so much. You know, it couldn't taint the love that I had between my grandmother and I. And I've thought long and hard about saying to him, you know, you pushed me off and I don't really appreciate that. And I have to forgive him, but I'm really not quite there. I don't go to mass every Sunday. In fact, I, I, I rarely do anymore because what's really amazing is that performing in drag has fulfilled that relationship with God for me because we even we even rehearse on Sundays so it's perfect it's like our potluck you know let's you know meeting with Jesus and doing a touch of drag <laughs> so you know and it may sound very alien to a lot of people that are listening um, but you find God in all kinds of things and you can find it in drag. You can find it in gardening. You can find it in um, cutting a piece of fabric. That's where God hides. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your story with the Snap. We're happy to say that Paul is still making dresses for his performances with the Jewel Box Cabaret in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he'll be competing in the International Gay Rodeo this August. Rooting for you, Paul. The original score was by Renzel Gorio. The story was produced by Jasmine Aguilera. Now then, when Snap returns, death, sex, and money. We're going to touch two of those three topics with Miss Death, Sex, and Money herself when the Snap Judgment episode continues. Stay tuned. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Boxed In episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and every once in a while, we like to let you know what we're listening to. And there's this podcast called Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC that we are digging. And they talk about those things, death, sex, money, and a bunch of other stuff. And as such, please note, this piece 
does have some explicit content, so probably not a great idea for the youngsters. One day, the host of that show, Anna Sale, she got an email from a sex worker who wanted to explain why she does the work she does and why she feels fine making money the way that she does. This woman agreed to talk about her work if her voice were changed. She also uses a fake name. This is Anna. Hi. So I'm calling you Emma? Yes, thank you. This was the first of several conversations between Emma and me over a series of months. Emma got into sex work after a divorce left her broke, and she had kids to raise. I had a lot of savings, and that basically all got used up. Emma had a job, but she wasn't bringing in enough. Then she met a woman who told her about a way to earn a lot more money. She first told me she did sensual massage. I had no idea what she was talking about. And she told me, you know, she really opened up to me and shared her story with me, which was very similar. Um, Had been married for 20 years, was going through a divorce, three kids. And she let me know how much money she made the first year. And and I, it just, this was at a, literally a time where within a month I was not going to have any money. How much did she tell you she had made? Oh, I think she made, um, she made somewhere between one hundred and fifty and 200000 her first year working. And that's doing sensual massage? Yeah. Like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it's not... It's not full service. It's not, um, it doesn't involve intercourse. No intercourse. Yeah, yeah. And it's massage that's very sensual. How long did you have to think about it to decide that this is something you were willing to do? Uh, not very long. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm just, you know, I can make, I just knew I had to do it. And it was a solution to my dilemma Um, this woman was really wonderful. She talked to me a lot about it, and she invited me to come in and watch a session. And um, then this person that I watched offered to be a client and let me just try a session. And so, you know, I kind of just kept doing, just kind of slowly getting in there and seeing how it felt and making sure that I could do it. And, um, yeah, and, and I could. Now Emma has a regular stable of clients. She doesn't have to see anyone she doesn't know. They're mostly men, and they meet her at this place that she rents out for work. Yeah, it's in an area where there are just a lot of people coming and going and not really paying attention to each other. Um, it feels really safe. So what are your what are your boundaries? How do you describe that to a client? I, I, I try and protect myself from and you can hear even with the words I use what it's like for me you know some of my own personal my private areas I really would prefer that they just stayed for me and um, uh, that can be difficult though that's a hard boundary sometimes to keep so you like to I like to give I like to touch yeah yeah and not to, I mean, I, I love receiving massage, but, uh, you know, talking about sexually, I don't really like to be mm-hmm. sexually touched by other people other than my partner. Um, yeah. That's a really um, 
I imagine that can get really um, potentially uncomfortable when you're thinking about, am I consenting to what's happening right now? It, um, you know, this is hard for me to say because I don't want to be speaking for all sex workers. But um, for me, um, personally, that part of it, I feel a little bit like I'm violating myself. Because I am giving permission. I always give permission. I am never forced to do anything that I don't want to do. I make the choice myself. And there are times when I choose to let things happen to my body that I feel like I'm violating myself. That's, that's the hard part. That's the really hard part. And when it's mixed with money, I mean, I, I'm assuming that if— if you're going further than what you anticipated, does that does that usually lead to more money? No, not directly. Not 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 in that. Um, oh, now I'm going to get more money today. Um, it's more part of the relationship. How much does it cost? I don't know if I'm comfortable sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this, okay? I'm, um, I, I, I don't make anything like that woman that I told you about who I met in the beginning. I just do enough to get by. And then I have other work that I do that doesn't, you know, it's like piddly money. So, you know, you're, you're very aware that your clients are in relationships. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, their partners don't know that they're there with you. Mm-hmm. How do you yeah. feel about that? Sad. Really sad. I talk to my clients about, you know, this may sound awful, but sometimes they will open up to me and I'll, I'll coach them on, well, you know, what, do you, what would you like your relationship to be like? And so many of my clients are coming to me and for one reason or another, they're in a relationship where, they're not getting physical intimacy. Nobody hugs them. Nobody touches them. Nobody looks at them and says, you're amazing. And I get to do that. I get to give that to those people, and I love that. Are you still doing it for the money? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't do it for any other reason. You're in a relationship? Mm-hmm. What's been hard in your relationship I think the hardest thing is just that there are things that I'm doing as part of my work that are not authentic to me and that hurt me. And so I bring that home. I come home sometimes, and I'm vulnerable and weak. I might have some physical aversions. Like It, it may take me a little while to want to be physically intimate. Has he asked you to stop? No. No, he would never ask me to stop. But the next morning, Emma left us this voicemail. This morning, my partner held me while I cried and confessed all my fears. This morning, he asked me to cancel all my appointments this week. He's worried I'm getting too fragile, that it's getting to be too much. After we recorded our first interview, Emma had a tough night. She was nervous about what she'd shared and haunted about what she'd left out. She sent us a long email, then called and read it over a voicemail, too. This is what I wish I had shared. I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid because what I do is illegal and because I have no voice. I can't reach out for support. I'm afraid of being caught by law enforcement. Why did I minimize that with you? I'm afraid of it every day. I'm afraid of having to defend myself, of being put in jail, of losing my children and my ability to support my family, my home, and my freedom. I'm afraid of being physically hurt or killed. I'm afraid of running into someone I know or the family of someone I know being found out, turned in, stalked. Again, having my family impacted and losing everything that matters to me. I'm afraid of my clients finding out about the part that's fake. And I don't enjoy it all, that sometimes I'm grimacing, sneaking peeks at the clock. I'm afraid that someday I will forget to hold my tongue and shout stop. What happened afterwards for you? Well, I didn't sleep that night at all. This is Emma, a few months after we recorded our first conversation. And um, I finally got up at, what was it, like 3 or 4 in the morning. I got out of bed, and I got on my computer, and I started writing. And I wrote you uh, that letter. And, you know, I'd been working consistently for about six months, almost, you know, almost every day. So it was just a long time. I'd never gone that long without taking a break. And then just after talking to you, I just realized how much it was wearing on me, how much I needed to get away from it. And, um, and I just felt sick. Emma told me she canceled all her appointments, and she took some time off from sex work, almost three months. It was really hard, and I, I wanted to, and yet I'm thinking about my rent. It's a big deal to just walk away from that, but um, it felt really good every day to just not wake up with that, just that knowledge that I was going to go have an appointment. I came back. I mean, I did have it kind of scheduled, planned in my head of when it would happen. And and so it was just time because that was it. I, there's no way I'm dipping into my real savings that I have, you know, over the last few years. I'm not, I will not dip into that. Is that the, the how I'm going to stop doing sex work savings? Um, no. I, I think it's the emergency savings. It's if something happens where I have to stop. If I end up, you know, if I get injured and I have to, and I have, and I have no cushion, then what am I going to do? I'm going to end up on the street. And um, so this is a job. Why does anybody work at Walmart? It'd be great if we could all work specifically and only at something that we loved and we're truly passionate about. And I think if you're young and you don't have kids, this is a great time to make that happen for yourself. But I didn't do that. I didn't make, I didn't create that career when I was 21. I actually got pregnant when I was 21. How did your first day back feel? It was actually really easy. Did you have any different boundaries after you went back? No, no. Um... I was, I've probably maybe a little bit less. My boundaries might have opened up a little really? bit. Yeah, just because towards the end there, I was just so tired and protective. And um, 
but I was definitely more open and more um, just kind of you know, certain ways that I wasn't allowing people to touch me anymore that, that I was, you know, was okay with. That you're okay with now? Yeah, I don't know how long that's going to last. <laughs> yeah. Have you had any of those feelings of dread since going back? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's it's hard to share these things because I can see somebody listening and, and like, why would you do this thing when you have dread? And even I think about other sex workers listening to this and, and that's kind of one of my fears. Another fear with this interview is to have sex workers listening to me and getting mad at me too for representing the, the downside, the hard parts. But yeah, honestly, if I didn't have, if I didn't choose to do it, if I, if I wasn't doing it, I'd be, I, I just have happy days every day that I know that I'm going to go see somebody, I have some dread. It's usually before, you know, that once I'm kind of getting, once I open that door and I go into my routine, that, that goes away. And by about, probably within about five hours of coming home from my first session, I started to feel kind of sick. And, and now I'm looking at another probably four or five months at least before I have a break. How am I going to do this every day? Do you have a, a dollar amount that you want to have in the bank before you stop? Is there, is there a goal set? I probably need to be able to make about 80000 a year, maybe ninety before taxes, um, in order to pay my basic expenses and maybe and be able to save a little bit. If I had, if I had enough money to go back to school, like to get a master's, I would really like to get a master's or a PhD in um, in psychology or social work. And if I had enough money to do that, and I had enough money <laughs> to live for the amount of time that it would take to do that, I would definitely stop. And and Emma, I just want to kind of hear you in your your own words or say like, why did you decide to talk to me? <sighs> I think. Because I feel so alone, um, one of the things that's really hard is not being able to talk to anybody. And I'm, you know, I'm a mom. I'm around other women. And everybody talks about their challenges, the things that are hard in their life and things that are going well. And I just have this big secret that I can't tell anybody. And I think people need to know because there's a lot of people like me. I'm, I'm right there, and you just don't know. So that's why. Snappus, I'm here with Anna Sale, who produced that piece. And Anna, you have an update on the story. Yeah, this episode uh, first aired about a year and a half ago, and I just talked to Emma this week, and she is now officially retired. 
from sex work. What does that mean, retired? She's not doing it anymore. She figured out that she had enough money and savings to only do the work that she was doing that wasn't sex work part-time, and she's now back in school. She got a scholarship and realized she had enough money to take the leap. Permanently? Permanently out of sex work? Yeah. I think so. I think she she looks back on it as something that she's glad she was able to do when she was in a financial emergency. But she said talking to us helped her realize it wasn't something that she felt good doing anymore. Um, so once she had the money to stop doing it, she's ready to do it. When she told you that I'm retiring, how did she sound? How did she... What was her demeanor when she told you that? It it was really remarkable because what I remember about this interview is how heavy she felt. Like she was in a place where she wanted to get out and didn't know how. And talking to her now, a year and a half later, she sounds happy and light and like she was finally able to make a decision that's time had come. Wow. Yeah. Who do we have to thank for this piece? I worked with Katie Bishop and Emily Botine on the Death, Sex, and Money team, and Andrew Dunn mixed it. Right on. So this is by Death, Sex, and Money's Anna Sale, who's in the studio with us today. Anna Sale, thank you so much for sharing this piece with us. Thank you. Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. You can check it out wherever you get your podcast. Now then, you're thinking, Glenn... I need more storytelling in my life. Well, friend, you are in luck. That's right. However you get your podcast, get this one. iTunes, Stitcher, however it may be. Snap was produced by the team that never feels boxed in. Throw glitter in the air for the Uber producer himself, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Masini Miller knows the who. Anna Sussman knows the what. Joe Rosenberg, the when. Nancy Lopez, the where. And why, oh, why, Davey Kim. Elijah Dilda Smith, Adiza Egan Can, Liz Matt Can't, and vice versa. Renzo Gorio rides horses. Leon Morimoto rides bikes. Tail DeCott rides. Jasmine Aguilera, she can't be bothered. And you may or may not be familiar, but this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could strap yourself into a box, mail yourself all the way to the other side of the world, only to discover <gasps> it's a holiday weekend. And you're going to spend the next three days packed upside down beside the mailbox. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. WNYC.